you come now uh, to the Scripture, let me ask you to, to, to pray with me, please. Our Father in Heaven, as we come now to Your Word, I pray You would be with us, with me, with us, uh, to open up our minds uh, to You, to cause our attention uh, to be focused, God, upon You, uh, to listen, help us understand, and give us, I pray, that sweet disposition of heart that desires to follow God after you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to John in chapter 17, please. John chapter 17. I want to read just a couple of verses. We often read this whole prayer, but this morning will be a bit short of time, I suspect. Uh, But uh, I want to just read a couple of verses from this context of Jesus' prayer. This is John chapter 17. I want to read verses 17 through 19. Hear the word of God. This is Jesus praying. He prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let me read that again. Jesus prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Or you could translate that, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, we've made note of the intimacy of this prayer. It's intimate because of the the persons involved. The Father, the Holy Father, and the Son. It's intimate because of the people uh, for whom Jesus prays. He prays for those He loves, those the Father has given Him, His disciples who are there with Him, and all those who would come to believe in Him through them. That is, all believers for all time. So it's intimate in that sense. He's praying in a very real sense for us. It's intimate because of the moment in which Jesus is living. This is the moment that is right before his arrest, and ultimately leading to his crucifixion. And so if you think of all that, that's the moment in which we find Jesus praying this prayer. So it's intimate in that sense, because who he's praying to, who's doing the praying, who he's praying for, and of course this, this moment. Jesus is praying a number of things for us. We've already discussed the fact that he's prayed that the Father would keep us in his name, that is, that we would be secure in our knowledge of who God is, that we would be intimate with God to such a degree that we would know Him. And that would be true for us from this moment on. There never would be a time when we would not know God. Not only not know who He is, but not know His very presence in our lives. Not know God. He would keep us in His name. And then uh, Jesus prayed that we would have His joy in us. The joy that comes from knowing that we matter to God, that we're loved by Him. The joy that comes by knowing that every occasion of our life is, is given to us by God for our good. That every moment matters. We matter to God. Every moment matters. Every moment is purposeful under God. 
And that we're joyful as well because we know that what we have from God is of eternal value. It's exactly what we need. It's all that we need for all of eternity. So it's of great value, not only of great value for us, but great value for everyone. So uh, it matters to us what we have, and we matter to the whole world because we have this purpose then of being sent into the world with this message to love them, to love others with this message. And all of that combined is the means by which we're to live in the very joy of Jesus because that's what he knew. He knew the love of his Father. He knew the good that was going to come from every circumstance and every situation in his life. He knew that what he had in his relationship with the Father, the, the, the being able to give eternal life was of great value. And this was not only great for him, but it was great for all the people to whom he would come in contact, all the people to whom he would give it. And so Jesus was filled with joy. He wants us to have that joy. He prays that we be sanctified. That's what we just read. He prays that we would all be one, just to see in the Father are one. Uh, he prays also that we would come to be with him and see his glory. This morning, if God will help me, I want to take up this section, these few verses uh, of, of Jesus' prayer that we be sanctified in truth. Uh, I'm not going to get to everything today. Basically, today I'm going to lay this out. I want to give you kind of an overview of these verses, and we'll unpack them in the weeks uh, to come, I suspect. Uh, but Jesus prays that we be sanctified. Now, that's a funny kind of word. We use that in church a lot. We don't use that in our everyday speech very often. You read the newspaper, you'd be hard-pressed to find the word sanctify. Uh, anywhere. It just, I've been looking for it. haven't found it uh, there. Uh, we could use it in, in sort of common generic language. For instance, uh, we could say that a cook sanctifies an onion that that cook would use to put into the stew, that that would be a sanctified onion, or that a student going to the library, if students do that anymore, uh, 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 and would sanctify a book by taking that book from the shelf Book students don't know what books are, do they? Just click on book uh, and uh, uh, take a book from the shelf and and use it in the paper that they're writing. That would be sanctifying that that book before baseball games. Umpires sanctify baseballs. There's a big big whole big tub of base. They do, honey. Trust me. Uh, they take the, from the big vat of baseballs. They take baseballs out that they're going to use for the game. And then they sanctify them as well by rubbing mud on them. You know this. You should know this. It's an important fact. From the Delaware River Valley, they rub mud on them. And they sanctify. It's true. Don't look at me like that. I can't believe I haven't told her this before now. I failed my marriage. Ah, leading my wife properly. But um, Gracie knows this, trust me. Um, uh, and so these baseballs are, are, are sanctified. When somebody calls on the phone and, and, and they want you to, to take a message, there's usually by the phone this, this, uh, this cup of pens and pencils. None of the pencils have points, none of the pens write. But if you're going to take a message and you would pick one out of that cup and sharpen it, you have one of those kind of sharpeners. Uh, 20 years ago, I would have done this. <laughs> 100 years ago, I would have done this. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
and you sharpen it, you're sanctifying it, and you use it. That's a sanctified pencil. So what sanctify means, it comes really from the root word in the Bible of holy, or even saint. And it means to separate out for a particular, specific use. That's what holy means. So when we sing holy, holy this morning, we're, we're saying that God is different. He's other. He's different from everyone else and everything else. He's different from his creation. So different that he's unique and, and, we, and we place him. He's placed before us and we worship him. Holy, holy, holy uh, is the Lord. And, and that's generally where we find this word holy or sanctified in religious kinds of circles. The Bible uses holy and sanctified all the time. In fact, the, the dictionary uh, definition of, of sanctified is to, to make sacred or to make holy, to set apart for some holy or sacred use. It has this sort of religious connotation. And so as we read through the Bible, we see the very things and people are made holy or sanctified. We read through the Old Testament, we find that the tabernacle, and, and all its insides, the altar and the utensils, were sanctified. Mount Sinai was a sanctified mountain uh, because of all the mountains that were in that range, all the mountains that God could have chosen. He chose Mount Sinai. He set it apart from all the other mountains. And, and that would be the place uh, uh, wherein He would reveal Himself to His people and, 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 and wherein He would give them the law. So Mount Sinai was a holy mountain on your holy mountain, your in Jerusalem is a holy city. Of all the cities in the Old Testament in ancient Israel, Jerusalem was that holy city, the city of David, the city where, where God would dwell, if you will. It was holy. Uh, people would be sanctified. Um, priests would be sanctified. It's mentioned specifically the prophet Jeremiah, sanctified. That is, of all the men in the days of Jeremiah, he was picked out by God, chosen, and worked in by God in such a way that he would be his holy or sanctified, his holy prophet. The Lord Jesus, we read in verse 19, he said, I consecrate myself, and I mentioned as I was reading that, that could be translated in the margins of your Bible, other Bibles would translate this straight up. I sanctify myself. That is, that, that Jesus separated himself from glory. He separated himself from the glory that was his before the foundation of the earth, and made himself, was made to be a man. God, man. So he was consecrated, sanctified, dedicated then to the use to which his father had called him, which would be to be the savior of all of his people. The very Lord, ultimately, of glory. He sanctified himself. Amazingly, every believer is sanctified. Every believer is sanctified. Notice, in, even in this uh, passage, it's hinted at verse 6 in John 17. Jesus said, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. These people were in the world, and, and in this sense, they were given to Jesus, and he took them out of the world in that sense of sanctifying. In fact, the church, the word church in Greek is ecclesia, and it means called out ones. The ones who've been called out. So, so here's the world. 
and believers are those who've been called out of it. Now, we're sent back into it, so don't think we just hang out here forever, but we're called out. We're separated in such a way that God reveals himself, cleanses us, forgives us, brings us to faith, so that we can be then dedicated to his glory, consecrated his glory. We're sanctified in that sense. So, for instance, Paul could write to the churches in 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, verse 2, he writes this. To the church of God, now remember, that's Ecclesia, so he's saying to the called out ones, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now that little word saint is a derivative of the word holy. It's a derivative of the word sanctified. In fact, you could translate the word saint simply as sanctified ones or holy ones. So it could easily be translated. Saints aren't special people from the larger set of Christians. It's not a subset of Christians. Saints are believers. We're all, Paul writes, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, the church, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs, their Lord and ours. Then in chapter 6, in verse 11, Paul puts it like this. And such were some of you, he's listed all kinds of sins, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, past tense, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified. God plucked you out of the world, called you out to be, to be His. First Peter uh, and chapter 1, just to show this, runs the gamut, not only the Apostle Paul, but Peter as well. First uh, Peter in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Notice, he's now saying that it's the Spirit who sanctifies, it's the Spirit who separates us out, gives us new life, if you will, even works in us, and we're sanctified by the Spirit uh, for obedience, for a particular purpose, and for cleansing, for the sprinkling with his blood. That, that sense of being set apart. But there's another aspect to this sanctification. Not only just being set apart by God for this purpose, but there's this process of being made holy as well. We could say that we've been sanctified and are being sanctified. Has both of those of those elements in it. For instance, in First Thessalonians and chapter five, verse twenty-three, we read this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. There's a sense as, as Paul's writing to this final benediction, if you will, to the Thessalon- people in Thessalonica, the church there, he's saying this God of peace himself is going to sanctify you completely. There's this sense that he set you apart, and now he's going to do a work in you that will, that will not only 
separate you out from everyone else, but work in you in such a way that you will become holy. Ephesians in chapter 5. Paul's writing about marriage and writing about the church. We get a glimpse of that, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything, that she might be holy and without blameless. There's this sense that, that the Lord has separated us out, but now he's going to work in us in such a way so as then to present us to his Father without spot or blemish. We see this again in Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 12. The author of Hebrews, in talking about Jesus as our priest, says, But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So in one sense we're perfected. And in one sense we're being perfected. In one sense we're sanctified, set apart, to be made holy. And in another sense, we use that same word, to be talking about this process of becoming increasingly holy. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones separates it out like this. He's a dead preacher from England. Um, he writes this. He says, what is to sanctify? The first sense of sanctify, and we must always put this one first because it's the most emphasized in Scripture, is to set apart for God and for God's service. So you'll find that this term sanctify is not all used of men, it's used of mountains, of the holy mountain on which the law was given to Moses, Mount Sinai, it was sanctified, set apart for a special function in order that God might use it to give his revelation. So you see, there is a double aspect to this primary meaning of the word. It means, first, a separation from everything that contaminates and perverts. And second, positive aspect, is that something or someone is devoted wholly to God. So it's a separating out for this purpose of being devoted to God. And then he goes on to say this. There is a second meaning. And that is, it means... God's work within us, a work of purifying, of cleansing, of purging. And this work is designed to fit us for the title which has been put upon us. What title has been put upon us? The title that's been put upon us is saint. The holy ones of God. And so he's given us that name. He's given us that title, the holy ones of God. And now he's saying, all right, I'm going to make good on this. I've given you that name. Because I know what's to come, and I know what's true, but now I'm going to make good on it. It says, we've been adopted, taken out of the world, set apart, and now being conformed increasingly to the image, the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we may, in truth, be the people of God, in reality as well as in name. So this is obviously, (laughs) I would underline obviously, a progressive work. God makes the pronouncement. And then now we're in this process of sanctification. Now, the three questions which come of this. We see that Jesus is praying that God would set apart his people for his purpose, to glorify him. 
And then in so setting apart His people for His purpose to glorify Him, that He would work in them. That they would indeed do that. That they would indeed be holy so that Christ would be seen in them. Okay, that's His prayer. Think about that. That's what Jesus is praying for you and for me all the time. So whatever circumstance we happen to be in, whatever thing we happen to be going through, whatever thought process, whatever circumstance it may be, what Jesus is praying is that that circumstance thought process will work in such a way that we will be made holy, that we will glorify God in that. That's his chief concern, if you will. Now, why then does he pray that? And and, and I think we can derive from this passage um, uh, two reasons and then we'll be able to see as well the basis for his confidence. I'm not going to be able to get to all this. I just want to outline it today because I'm moving quickly here. First, what's the reason for which he prays it? Okay, that's important to us. Second, what's the, what's the means through which this sanctification comes? And then thirdly, what's the basis or foundation for Jesus' confidence that this is going to take place? Now, the reason that Jesus prays this is, is, is varied. First of all, we could say this is the reason for which he has saved us, that we would be sanctified that we would be made holy. Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 29. You know this whole passage begins with the great text, the great verse 28. God works together all things for good. Those who love Him are called according to His purpose. And here's the reason He does that, verse 29. And we know that uh, for, for those who love God, all things, beginning with verse 28, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom... He foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, that's the good. That's the purpose of our lives, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. In fact, uh, in um, Ephesians, in chapter 2, the great passage that deals with our being saved by grace through faith ends with this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It doesn't simply separate us out from the world that we might have this salvation that is to come, but he separates us out from the world for this purpose of being recreated in the image of Christ so that we could go about these works that are good that he has prepared in advance for us to do. In fact, as Paul writes to Titus, he puts it like this, uh, Titus In chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the reason for which he's saved us. That we would be a people of his own possession, a people cleansed, purified, sanctified, who are zealous for good works. That is, who are like Jesus. 
And so he prays that we'd be sanctified because that's the very purpose of his saving us. Not only that, I suspect he prays that we be sanctified because he's just prayed that we be kept from the evil one. If you'll turn back to John chapter 17, verse 13, uh, he says this, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It can also be translated, keep them from evil. Either way, evil one has a personification of Satan. Evil is the manifestation of all that Satan brings. But to keep us from evil. Because we know that the world is a dangerous place. He's already told us that the world will hate us. There's, a, there's an underlying and a governing, really, philosophical, theological um, view that the world has that's contrary to that of God trying to lure us away from trusting Him and following Him, believing Him. And so, um, Jesus prays that we be kept from that evil. Now, how are we going to be kept from that evil? I suppose He could remove that evil. One day, He will. He hasn't yet. It's still here. Read the newspaper. Watch television, all right? The evil is still here. He hasn't removed it. He can remove us from that evil. He hasn't done that yet. Okay? We're still breathing. We're still here. Uh, evil's around us. In fact, He sends us into it. He sends us into the world where there is evil. He doesn't remove us from it. He doesn't call us to begin a monastic movement. He doesn't call us to build a Christian commune somewhere. He doesn't call us to separate ourselves out in that kind of way. He sends us deliberately into this evil. But he prays that we be kept from it. So, how is it that we're going to be kept from it when it's all around us? The way is to make us resistant to it. To sanctify us to change us, to transform us, to cause us to be self-controlled in such a way, to cause us to trust Him in such a way, to cause us to believe God in such a way, to, God us, to, to, to cause us to have inner desires that are purified and cleansed so that we desire the things of God and we can see through, because we're wise, we can see through the evil things. We can unmask all these things which are trying to lure us away from Him and He can build up our resistance. If there's a, a virus, of course, in, in, in a community, you can deal with that in a variety of ways. You can try to kill the virus. You can quarantine people and keep them away from the virus. Or you can, in some way, work to make the people resistant to that virus. And that seems to be what he's doing in us through this process of sanctification. As he's making us holy, he's causing us to stand up to this evil and not be overcome by it. That is the means by which he keeps us from evil. So he prays 
Not only be kept from the evil one, and kept from evil, but he prays, therefore, logical progression from what he desires, he prays, therefore, that we be sanctified. How else are we going to be kept from evil? If we're in the very midst of it, we've got to be transformed. We've got to be changed. It isn't that we're just sort of set apart and salvation is going to come by and by when Jesus returns. That is certainly true. Evil will be done away with. We'll be completely sanctified and all of that. But for now, he's working on us in our hearts, in our lives, through everything, so that we become resistant to this sin and evil that's around us. And he sanctifies us as well so that he can send us into this. He says, For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The reason that Jesus consecrated himself, sanctified himself, was so that he could be sent into the world. He dedicated himself. He consecrated himself. He set himself apart from glory, if you will, and all that the glory that was due him. And he went into this world. So, we are sanctified, consecrated, set apart, so that we too can be sent. Now, how? What's the means by which we're sanctified? He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It's this truth that sanctifies. It's the truth that sets us apart. It's this truth of God, His very word, that changes us. And thus, we must be immersed, versed in this truth. It must be who we are as as uh, John Owen said of, of uh, John Bunyan, when you prick him, he bleeds Bible. We need to be those kind of people. We need to be people of the, of the Word. As John Wesley would refer to himself and his people were people of the book, one book. Give me that book, he said. Because it is this Word that sets us apart. Peter puts it like this in First Peter and, and uh, chapter 1. He writes... Having purified your souls, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. He's saying it's this Word of God that's powerful. Paul writes that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It's this word that draws us. It's this word that draws others. It's this word that changes, brings new life to people. Um, it's that very seed of the word of God that works in people's lives. And it's amazing, isn't it? You hear this truth and something changes. Something happens. Uh, I've known it in my own life. I've seen it in your lives. Many of you have reported it to me as you've come to our church and said, whoa, what is there different about this church? I don't know. I just read the Bible to you. Uh, it's, it's, I get paid. It's amazing. I get paid to read the Bible to you. Um, but, uh, but that's this Word of God that's powerful to change people's lives. It's very seed. And it's, as, as, um, as, Peter, <clears throat> as Peter puts it, uh, all flesh, as he quotes the Old Testament, all flesh is like grass in, in all its glory, like the flower of, of, of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This very word that was preached to you, that you heard, did something in you and gave you life. That's the word that Jesus uses to call us, to separate us out 
to, to make us different in that sense so that we can be saints used for His glory, this very Word of God. It's this very Word that Moses says is an idol but our life. It's this very Word that the, the psalmist puts in Psalm 119 that keeps us from sin. He puts it, Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart. Many of you have memorized this where I've hid or hidden your word in my heart. That I might not sin against you. It's that word of God. It's in there. It's, 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 as the author of Hebrews says, it's, it's a two-edged sword. It's cutting deeply. It's exposing all unbelief and it's exposing the lies of, of the world and it's saying that's not true and that's not true and don't believe that but believe this and trust God here and trust God there. It's that word that, that comes to us that if it didn't, if it wasn't in there, if we weren't seeing it, we wouldn't get it, we'd be sucked into the world. And he says, he says this, this very word of God, that's what keeps us. And so the psalmist writes, I'll meditate on your precepts, fix my eyes on your ways. I'll delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Later he puts, puts it like this. Put false ways far from me. Graciously teach me your law. That's verse 29. Pray that this week every day. That God would put false ways far from you. And that he would graciously teach you his law. You see? And then he says, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your law before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I'll run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You see, it's by way of God's word that he enlarges our hearts. It isn't that we can turn away from it and go our own way and think, I know that well enough. I'm good enough for that. I've heard that enough times. My heart's big enough to make it. And you'll find that it isn't. You'll find bitterness and anger and jealousy and, and, and unbelief creep in. It's this daily feeding. It's this weekly feeding of the Word of God that we must have. Paul writes that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. We need it to increase our faith. It's by the encouragement of the Scriptures, Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, that we have hope. We need the encouragement of the Scriptures. Peter writes that, that God has given to us through His great promises all that we need for life and godliness. And it isn't, of course, just a cognitive understanding of this. It isn't that just we learn enough so we can pass a multiple choice test. It's the doing of this Word, as James says. We must do it. As we hear it, we must do it. We don't do it. When we hear it, we're foolish. We're, we're like people who look in the mirror and have dirty faces, but leave uh, with dirty faces. Uh, we look into this word. It needs to change, transform. We need to do it. If not, we've, we've wasted it. We've just thrown it as pearls before swine. It's the pearl. We're the swine if we don't do it, you see. It's this very word to sanctify, to strengthen, to give us life now. Sanctifies us by the truth. The confidence with which Jesus prays this prayer is this, he says, for their sakes. There isn't a more personal 
nor more powerful expression in all of the Bible than the little expression for their sakes or for us. I don't think, I hope anyway, I don't think we can run across that expression for their sakes or for us and not choke up and not feel chills up and down our spine. Because what we have in that little expression from the lips of the Lord of glory is that I'm doing something for you. I'm doing something for you. It isn't that we're doing something for Him. Now, you would think that that's the way it ought to be. He's the Lord of glory. Shouldn't we be doing something for Him? And, of course, we can't. What is it that He needs? He's complete in Himself. We're the needy ones. And the the amazing thing of Christ, of His Father, is that He did for our sakes. Did not come To be served, he says. This just boggles everybody's mind that God would say this. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. We We become so accustomed to the goodness of Jesus that we forget about how different this is, how completely different this is for God to say, I don't need you. You need me. I don't need you to give to me. You need me to give to you. And I will condescend to you. I will come to you. I'll take upon myself. As Jesus says, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. I consecrate myself. I'm giving myself to them for this purpose, that they may be sanctified. That's the ground of this prayer, you see. That's the confidence with which Jesus prays it. He says, I know this is going to come, become true because I'm going to make it true because this is why I've come. I've come to give myself so that you could be separated out from the world, so that God could work His holiness in you, so that you could be conformed to my image, so that you could be set apart as a person with the honorable purpose, the great purpose, the highest purpose, as to be set apart by God to be used for His glory. And Jesus, I know it's going to happen because this is why I'm giving myself. So he sanctifies himself. He voluntarily, joyfully leaves his glory and takes on human flesh. He experiences evil in the world against him like no other man could ever know it face to face with the evil one and does battle. He knows the weakness of human flesh. He experiences rejection and betrayal and pain and suffering to the ends that no one else could even comprehend. He takes the penalty for our sin upon himself and he pays it and he rises and he's exalted and he said, now come to me because I'm the Lord of glory. I did this for your sakes. We see it the night that Jesus was praying. He took bread and he said to his disciples, this is my body which is given for you. Think about this. Think about what I'm doing for your sakes. This is my body for your sakes. In the same way, he took the cup, he gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said... Astounding words. This 
cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle said, as often as we eat of this bread, drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming that, that he sanctified himself for our sakes, that we might be sanctified. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us, people of unclean lips, people whose eyes have seen the Lord of glory, people whose sins have been atoned for, amazingly, Pray now that you would cause us as we think upon Christ to receive from him faith, hope, encouragement to persevere, forgiveness of sins, rest for our souls, courage to go, courage to be sent, as Isaiah said here, my Lord, send me courage to be sent, love to sacrifice. Father, we know this is bread and juice, but we know that you've set this sacrament to us by way of our Lord Jesus, that this would be for us His very presence among us, so I pray. And we experience now the very presence of Jesus. Even as we've experienced it throughout the service. But we experience it now in this special way. May we meet with Him. Sanctify us. For He is truth. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope, except in His sovereign mercy. We believe and depend upon the Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the Gospel as the Savior of sinners. And we desire to live a life that's consistent with naming the name of Christ. That's consistent with the title that we've been given, the Holy Ones of God. We desire to follow after him, trusting that he is at work in us, purifying, cleansing, sanctifying. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down the aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and remind yourself, for my sake, for our sake, he sanctified himself so that I, we, might be sanctified. Please come.